0: Morning. It's close to afternoon, so uh, typically our service at Exchange Church ends at 12, eleven fifteen, and so I feel like I've been let out of gates here. Like I don't have a time restriction on my hands, so might be spending the better part of the day together. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've got lunch to go to as well. All right. So uh, I hope you have found a really good place here at Northwick. I spent uh, about a decade here. Uh, with my family, and we loved every minute of it. It was some of the most transformational years of our marriage, our life, uh, the way that we view church, uh, the way that we view Christ. I learned uh, so much here. Um, if If you've been here for more than uh, you know 30 minutes, you've probably been surrounded by people who love deeply, um, and you'll find that out really, really quickly here at North Wake. And so I feel like as a guest, Speaker, I can unbiasedly say uh, that you're in a really good spot uh, if you're here at North Wake for the first time. So welcome. I just, uh, you know, it's been uh, almost four years, um, almost exactly that that our church exchange was commissioned from um, North Wake, and um, so you know it's been it's been several years um, since we've really been. Uh, been here, and my oldest son, Brody, he's nine, and someone that taught him probably five years ago, six years ago uh, in class today uh, stopped me and said, hey, how's Brody doing? And I love that. You know, there, there's people here, there, there's, there's folks in these rooms caring for your kids, some of you, uh, that love them, that don't just uh, view it as childcare, uh, but as ministry. And so we're thankful for the, the ministry that North Wake has had towards us, in our life. Uh, as Daniel said, my name's Brian and I've got the, the privilege of helping pastor one of North wakes. Uh, and I like to think favorite church plant. Um, And we're located in Rollsville. Uh, It's just about 15 minutes from here. And uh, believe it or not, Rollsville, a little town, uh, last year, Realty.com posted an article where they listed America's top 10 booming towns. And Rollsville was number seven. We were just underneath, believe it or not, uh, South Beach, Miami. So uh, if you're looking for a new uh, vacation destination, right, uh, you might think Rollsville. Um, so I, I know that that Northwick prays for us often through uh, the Farfung families. Uh, I wanted to give you a couple updates on how you could pray for us if you remember us. First, uh, we've got several people uh, for for one reason or another um, that that are coming to exchange often, uh, just about every week. Um, that would not identify themselves as Christ followers. Some of them have come for community. Some of them out of curiosity. Maybe the excellent preaching. Um, some of them have come because their spouse is a believer and they're just kind of attached to that. But for some reason, the Lord has given us this chance to minister to several uh, people right now who um, are, are not necessarily antagonistic in their faith, but, but, um, but, but mostly not even searching. And the Lord allows us to speak the gospel over them Uh, each week. We just had one uh, come to know the Lord about two weeks ago, a teacher uh, in the Wake Forest area. And then uh, we've got, uh, I think, five more that we're praying for specifically. So you can help us pray in that way. Uh, You can help us pray for open roads in Rollsville. It's a bedroom community. So in the land of garage door openers where everybody, you know, hits the button and pulls into their isolation zone and then leaves their isolation zone, you know, to go to work somewhere. Uh, You know, for about two years, it was a real struggle for us to to infiltrate the neighborhoods, but the Lord is granting his favor. And so just pray that, that the Lord continues to allow us to infiltrate kind of the, the walls of isolation that we desperately desire. And then the uh, third, so you can pray for discernment uh, for me and for the rest of the elders. We've got four. Uh, none of us have ever planted a church before, so if you run into any of our folks, please don't tell them that. Uh, We like to make them think that we know what we're doing, right? Uh, And so it feels like uh, almost weekly we make decisions that's going to affect the church for years to come. And I know that sounds like an overstatement, but that's honestly just, that's the weight of pastoring. And so um, I would just urge you as as Larry's on sabbatical and he gets a time to refresh, pray for him. Uh, One of the greatest things that you can do for your pastor is to pray for them, pray for discernment, and also not to do anything stupid, but also to pray for them, right? Uh, it makes their life um, just a lot easier. Uh, so you can pray for us that way. And so if you've been here for the past few weeks, uh, you know that we're in a series uh, through the book or the letter of uh, Hebrews. And chances are you've gotten a lot of background information on it so far, so I'm not gonna go into a ton of that. But you know that the letter was written to uh, believing Jews or Hebrews who had uh, placed their faith in Jesus, uh, but, but had the tendency or had the struggle to uh, turn back and and to seek kind of the ritualistic um, law, the old covenant of what they were doing, uh, to seek something greater. And so uh, if you can remember the past few chapters was making a case for a greater high priest. And and the writer here, he's writing to these people who are somewhat confused. I mean, if you can imagine the idea that the Messiah had come, had died, had risen and ascended is, is something difficult for any, Anybody to imagine. But, but if you can place yourself in the position of, uh, the, you know, first century Jews who longed for a Messiah who would be just as much political as they, he was spiritual. And so they were hoping and expecting for a Messiah that would come and rescue them for their sins, for sure, but also for the one who would come and rescue them from their oppression. Right? And so when that didn't happen for a couple of decades, and maybe their oppression continued to increase for that amount of time, some of them started saying, well, maybe this wasn't the one that we were looking for maybe we need to continue to look. Maybe the the whole ritualistic thing was actually what we need to be doing. And so they were looking back towards that. Or some were simply viewing Jesus as like a supercharged Judaism uh, way of living life. And so they were looking at Jesus as just someone who would make their rituals even more so meaningful. And so uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to this group of people, and he's writing a letter challenging them to say, no, Jesus is greater. And for chapters 1 through 7, he's made a case over and over and over again, as, as your teachers have come in uh, really w- and, and, and amplified that message even more so, that Jesus is greater. And so now it's it's not just story over, mic drop, Jesus is greater, you know, end of discussion. He's building a case for something. And so in chapter 8, we get to this turning point where where he starts to build his case for what this greater high priest is going to do. So for the past few chapters, he's been saying Jesus is greater, and because he's greater, he's going to do something better, something greater. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 8. It's only 13 verses. We'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll come back around and look at some, I think, some lessons that the, the passage has for us today. So if you would uh, read with me Hebrews chapter 8, he um, says this, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So if you're new, uh, if this is your first week, or if you've been sleeping the past few weeks, the author gives you the cliff notes right here. Right? The main point in what we've been talking about is that Jesus is greater. And then he begins to build his case. He says this, And he's seated at the majesty of the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, with, which with the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed and to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So Noah talked about this last week. Jesus, of course, was from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi, which was literally the first qualification for the priesthood on earth. So as Noah talked about last week, even immediately when you lay out the resume of Jesus, the Son of God, right? He was disqualified because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So the author is saying that if he was from earth, if if his mission was like that of the earthly priests, he wouldn't even qualify. But his mission, his purpose is even greater than those. He says this, those priests, they just serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, that he says that you should make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and he starts to quote Jeremiah. Um, And this is where uh, the the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, uh, points to the new covenant, the new promise. And he says this, "Uh, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So we have this interesting passage, and if you're anything like me, uh, you read the talk of the old and the new, and we're, we're very easily, I'm very easily tempted to brush past it because the old isn't old to me, it's non-existent, right? The new isn't new to me, it's, it's just what is, does that make sense? So, for example, um, the, the uh, iPhone, the, the smartphone is a decade old. It came out in 2007, which means most of the children in the ministries uh, behind you in the rooms, uh, f- like fourth grade and younger, younger, don't know a world where their parents don't have a device in their pocket for the sole purpose of gaming, right? And that's what they believe these things do, you know? And so when you walk them past an old building with an old phone that's hanging from a cord attached to a wall with buttons on it that you put coins in, they look at you like you're crazy. And they think, why in the world would anyone ever use that, right? Their, their, their uh, conception of the smartphone or the phone, cell phone for that matter, doesn't extend past their life. And so when they look at something like this, they think, why would anybody for all of time, for all of history ever desire to use that, right? And so our tendency, my tendency is many times to completely write off the old as if it doesn't matter, it, it doesn't do anything for us now, right? But there's another side to that as well. Um, this week, uh, my parents uh, did the whole, you know, kind of family vacation reunion thing. They rented a beach house where they wanted their three kids um, and their 11 grandkids under the same roof, you know, and to them, that sounds like a vacation. (laughs) To me, it sounds like waterboarding, you know. I mean, it's not a vacation. That's just a trip, you know. It's it's just work, you know, and so unfortunately for us, uh, this week included a forecast of three days that were in their 60s and rain, right? And for once in their lifetime, the weathermen were absolutely correct, right? And so, um, so we had grand plans uh, to to entertain the kids, to make them connect with their cousins that they don't see often. You know, there were contests and games and cards and talent shows, and that lasted for 30 minutes, right? <laughs> and so, if we had three and a half days to fill. And I'm normally anti-device guy for my kids, but listen, we were pulling them out of everywhere. We were just like, we've got to entertain these children, you know? And they started looking at it. I mean, we were holding each other accountable. Uh, it's like my brother-in-law is like, you know, pulling out a phone. And it's like, what do you, wh- why didn't you charge that? 30%, bro? I mean, you're creating the natural disaster at this point. You give a toddler 30%, what's going to happen? The world's going to break down. This is life and death survival, right? We've got to be diligent. Charge a phone. Own, for the love of God, you know? So, so we were like lined up on the couch, literally 11 grandkids, like they're all elementary age pretty much. And they're all lined up on the couch, you know, just the device. And my dad pulls the dad card, you know, the, the, the dad card and he goes, I don't know about all these devices. You know, I do dad, they're quiet. You know, why don't you go take a nap? You know, you guys when, back in my day, you know, we didn't have anything but three channels of black and white. Uh, uh, uh. You know, it's just you know, kind of reliving the glory days. And he's like, the, the only remote we had was the youngest kid in the room, you know. <laughs> it's like, we did not have to worry about Wi-Fi and connection speeds and filters. You know, it just was what it was, you know. It's like he's idolizing the past, right? I'm like, Dad, do you not see that we are able to have a discussion at this very moment with 11 kids in this room? None of them can hear us, and we don't hear them. That's the beauty of the new school, Dad. That's what I'm talking about. You know, our tendency is to go one way or the other I think to maybe dismiss the old maybe even to idolize the old and to, for those who uh, do, operated really well in the Old Covenant some of these Jews who who were relapsing if you will into the rituals they were looking at this system and say it actually worked really well like I felt like I was managing my relationship with God I was managing this 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 system and I was able to to do what I needed to do right and and so at some point the the writer, of course, is using these familiar terms with us. And he's saying, listen, the things that you remember, the things that you know, it's not that it's useless. It's, It's not that it didn't have a purpose. Its purpose was just different than what you thought. And so in verse one through six, he begins to remind them and he starts to use very, very familiar terms, language that they would know very, very well. He uses words and terms like, uh, the, the sanctuary, tabernacle offerings, the priests, the tabernacle, the high priest, sin offerings animals would have to die he 's remembering and, 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 and asking them to remember that, that there was blood that would be shed day after day, year after year, the, the high priest would enter into the holy of holies atoning for the sin, but not before he would cleanse himself because he was human too and so he would go through this cleansing ritual, this process where he would be able to enter into the presence of God and he would atone for the sins of the nation, but also day after day, as we just sung and heard sung, that that daily there was bloodshed, right? And so the author is using the image of the things that they were very, very familiar with to say, listen, all of those things that you're very, very familiar with, the priests, the tabernacle, the offerings, the sin, the guilt, the blood, all of those things were really to point you to something greater. I think uh, one of the the things that I think is inescapable for us to see this morning in this passage is this, is that the Old Covenant was a picture of something greater to come. The Old Covenant was a picture of something greater to come. And I have no doubt that the people who lived closest to the tabernacle might have been the most discouraged. Day after day after day, they saw the blood being shed. They heard the cries of the animals being slain. They saw the priests in and out, in and out, over and over and over again. The blood never stopped. It was a constant picture that they would never be good enough. Their sin would always be there. The distance and the separation from them and God was always imminent they could never, ever keep the law perfectly. The, the, the daily sacrifices was a reminder of that. And Paul says it very clearly in his letter to the Galatians. He, he's using uh, the same term, and he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. And he says this, he says in chapter 3, verse 23, But before faith came, before the new covenant, he says, we were kept in custody under the law. It's as if we were prisoners. We were chained to law. We, we couldn't get away from it. There was no other option, right? being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. So therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. He says that the old promise, the old covenant was a teacher, it was a tutor, it was a schoolmaster that would press into us, it would push us, it would teach us that we couldn't keep the law. Its purpose was to point to a greater promise. Its purpose was to make us long for something else, something greater. It's amazing that anyone, I think, would want to live under those circumstances, isn't it? I mean, when something so clear was being offered to them, when something so gracious was being offered to them, that some people were were longing for the old covenant where they would live under the rituals and the shadowy picture when something better was being offered to them. There were Jews who were relapsing into the old system and they wanted to operate into the shadows instead of the clear grace of God. Why? I think it might be because... Uh, or for the same reason that more people uh, have more friends on their device than they actually do in real life. It's easier. It's more manageable, we think. So we can reply or we cannot. We can post. We can ignore. We can shut it down. We can follow. We can like And when someone says something that we don't like, we just turn it off. We can cowardly post behind a screen as passively, aggressively as we'd like and don't have to deal with anybody on the other side. It's the same reason why men and women both flock to images on a screen instead of the intimacy that God created them for. Because we feel like we have the opportunity to, to, to manipulate it on our own terms. We can shut it down or turn it on whenever we want without a relationship. It's the reason why people flock all over the world to a religion who will say, tell me what to do, tell me what to say, tell me what class to take, and tell me how to earn my way back to God. A relationship, it's far too much work. It's far too too inconvenient. I don't have room in my life. I don't have room for a relationship. What I have room for is a few hours on Sunday morning so you can tell me what I need to do and I can check that off my list and that I can feel okay about my not okayness with God. For some reason, some of us prefer to live in the shadows because we feel like it's manageable. There's a a lady that, that Tim Keller... Um, writes about in his uh, best-selling book, Reason for God, and he he writes about a woman in his congregation who was learning um, to tell the difference between the grace that was being extended to her and Christ's work on the cross actually being more than just a religion. And she was struggling, he writes, about just the the difference between this grace-based offering and what is normally viewed as a works-based righteousness, earning her way back to God. She had always heard, he writes, that God accepts us only if we're good enough. And so she said that the new message was scary. And when I asked why it was scary, she replied, if I was saved by good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. It'd be like a taxpayer that I have rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by grace, she says, there's nothing that he cannot ask of me. She understood, Keller writes, the dynamic of grace and gratitude. And if when you've lost all fear of punishment, you lose all incentive for a good life, unselfish life, then you've also, the only incentive that you've ever had for a decent life was fear. This woman could see immediately that the wonderful, beyond belief teaching of salvation was by sheer grace, but it had an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace, she was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew that if Jesus really had done all of this for her, she would not be on her own. She would be joyfully, gratefully belonging to Jesus who provided all of this for her at infinite cost to him. So, what about you? Do you cling to your own efforts in pleasing God, hoping and praying that they're good enough? Maybe it isn't at all your good deeds that you cling to. Maybe it's your past. And it's the bad ones, the bad choices that keep you away from Him. Maybe the weight of your sin. Maybe the idea of approaching God is so unbearable because you know you. You know the deep, dark places that no one else does. You know the secret desires that you hope you can keep at bay. But that's the beauty of the new covenant. He says it's not based on how we perform. It's based on greater promises, the author writes these greater promises have new meaning for us. And so in Hebrews chapter eight, verse six and seven, he begins to talk about these promises. And he says this, but now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's the mediator of a better covenant, a greater covenant, which has been enacted on better and greater promises. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So we know and we see that the, the old covenant was just a picture. It was something to press us to it was a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor. It was to show us that, that we're incapable of keeping the law. And so it was pointing us, forcing us to hope for a greater promise, a greater covenant. So the thing that we want to see about this greater covenant is that it's based on greater promises. The new covenant is based on greater promises. The old covenant was conditional and bilateral. When, when God was giving the promise or the covenant to Moses... And establishing his covenant with him, there were conditions to be met uh, for his, his blessings and his curses towards um, his people. They would both bring blessings and curses and they would be dependent on uh, the behavior of the people. So if you look at Exodus chapter 19, God is giving this uh, promise to Moses and he's talking about this covenant that he's going to establish with, with him and his people. And notice if you catch the hinging point or the hinge word of this promise. Watch in in, uh, Exodus 19, he says this, Now then, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine. See, there's an if-then statement. If this is true, if you follow me, if you behave properly, if you follow the commands that I've given you, then, then I will make you into my people and I'll bless you. And he continues to go on with this, this bilateral covenant in, in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. He says this, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God and be careful to do all of his commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you above the nations of the earth. All of these things will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And the Lord will establish you, verse 9, as a holy people of himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way. So many times over and over and over again, not just in these verses, but all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, we hear this language, the bilateral language of God speaking to his people and saying, listen, if you do these things, then this is how I will act towards you. But if you do these things, this is how I will act towards you as well. There were blessings and there were cursings. He, he continues in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. He says this, but it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and to, to observe all of His commandments and His statutes, which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. There's nowhere that you'll go. That these curses won't follow you. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. And increase your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. And cursed shall you be when you go out. Verse 25 and 26, he says this, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses. There will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. There's a bleak, scary depiction of what, what God will do, his promises towards those who do not obey It doesn't seem as if there's any neutral ground here. The the Lord doesn't give Moses and his people a third option. It's this. You obey and receive the promises and the blessings of who I am, or you disobey and you'll receive the cursing of who I, I, I will bring to you. But this isn't the way that it was supposed to be. It wasn't the way that it would be forever. And believe it or not, this wasn't plan B. This wasn't the way that God had had planned redemption for the entire world. It wasn't as if God enacted this covenant with Moses and then it took a few hundred years for him to figure out that it wasn't going to work out. Man, these people are disobedient. Got to do something else. No, we see over and over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament, we have prophets who are living under the Old Covenant prophesying about a greater covenant, starting in Genesis chapter 3 with the the account of the fall. You have the Lord prophesying already, speaking these words of truth to say there will be a greater covenant that will come. Do you remember this? As he begins to curse Satan for tempting and, and causing the fall of Adam and Eve, he says this in 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And catch this. He says, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He's not talking about a system. He's talking about a person. He's talking about the person of Christ that will come and defeat sin and the consequences of it for all of time. Even from the very beginning, even from the fall, we see God saying there's a greater covenant coming. There's a greater promise coming. There's a greater promise coming to you. Before the old covenant was ever given, God was promising a new one, and he used his prophets for hundreds of years to remind his people that there was a greater covenant coming. Isaiah, he writes about this in chapter 61, verse 8. He says, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. It's something different. It's something greater. This covenant can't be broken all of his prophets, all of the prophets in the Old Testament write in some way or another, focusing in on what the greater covenant is going to become. And then we find ourselves in the middle of our passage in Hebrews 8 where the author quotes the prophet Jeremiah. It's the longest quotation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he uses his words to to remind the people of where they once were and where the Lord is taking them. It was one of the darkest days of Israel, Israel, that they had ever seen in a time where God's people had found themselves at rock bottom with the old covenant. Can you imagine this for just a second? So the promises that God gave to them, listen, if you follow me, if you obey me, then I will bless you and I'll protect you. So these were the people that he says that he led out of Egypt who were slaves there. Remember the story. You you probably remember this, that, that, the, that the people were slaves for, for a very long time. They were crying out for a deliverer. God sent them Moses, right? And, and through that process, they, they witnessed this incredible event where, where the Lord was working through Moses uh, and also through and in Pharaoh to show his power to them. He sent these plagues. And so for many of the Israelites, for many of the, the people of Israel, they experienced on some level uh, the plagues and the power of, of the Lord, right? They, they saw the water being turned to blood. They saw how the, the, the animals of the Egyptians were all uh, killed with disease, but they were fine, right? It wasn't long after, after that, when they, they let them go, Pharaoh let them go, when their firstborns were just fine sleeping in their beds at night, and the, the firstborn of Pharaoh and all of his people were slaughtered that night, right? They, they come to the Red Sea. The, the Pharaoh changes his mind. He, he's coming after them, and Scripture says that, that the Lord split the sea into two, and not only that, but it says that they walked on dry land. Can you imagine this for a second? I mean, we're not reading about it. Think about the people who experienced it, that they literally saw with their eyes the sea split before them. As Pharaoh's armies encroaching and pressing in on them, they see the Lord do the impossible and split a sea for them. And the Bible says that they walked on dry land, their feet felt the dry sand beneath them. I can imagine that their face felt the mist of the sea split beside them. And as soon as they were past the, this point of no return, God closed the sea and swallowed up the, the army of Pharaoh. But it didn't stop there. They became hungry and thirsty. God provided food out of heaven, water out of rocks. Scripture says that they went up against armies far greater and far larger than theirs, and they were defeated because the Lord were with, was with them. They often and in, in many times saw the power of God in their life. And yet, many, many, many times they turned and said, "Maybe we should go back to Egypt." We we read this story, and we we know the rest of the story. We know that God is great. We we see His hand in their life. We see Him doing these incredible things, and we read the story and think, "Are you insane?" Like, why would you turn your back on a God who has the power to split a sea? Why would you turn your back on a God who has the power to feed you when there's no nutrition available in this desert? Why would you turn your back on a God who has the power to defeat armies far greater than yours? Why would you do that? I imagine people will look back in history to us and say, you've you've seen God's hand." You've seen him work miracles in your life. You've seen the hand of God provide for you when you didn't have the opportunity or the ability to provide for yourself. Why in the world would you choose to live in the shadows? Why would you choose to live in in a way that's turning your back on God? And Jeremiah is writing to the people in that instant. The darkest days that the kingdom had come and the, the, the uh, kingdom of, of Israel had found itself divided in civil war. The, the northern kingdom had already been taken away into captivity. And the southern kingdom had not learned from, from their mistakes, had not learned from what, uh, um, what turning their back on God would do. And so Jeremiah is prophesying 70 years of captivity right for them. And it's in that moment where he's saying, listen, there's something greater that's going to come. Right now, you're paying the price of turning your back on God. Right now, God is turning his back on you because you've turned your back on him. Right now, God is allowing you to pay for every bad and evil deed that you've committed against him. And he's going to allow you to pay that way in captivity for 70 years. But that's not the end of the story. He's got something greater to come. And so the prophet Jeremiah writes this, and he says, for finding fault with them, this is verse 8, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant which i made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So even the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah is explaining, like there was a, there was a purpose to the old covenant. It was to point you to the, to the reality that you couldn't keep it. And it was point you, pointing you to the hope that there was a greater coming. And, and here's the greater promise coming. God himself, speaking through his prophet, says this, this is the covenant that I'm going to make after those days. After, after you pay the price, I will put my laws into your minds, into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So even hundreds of years before, God is introducing this idea that he's going to do something completely different, something completely greater. And don't miss this. Do you see what the new covenant is based on? It's not based on who we are and what we do. He says, listen, this is the work that I'm going to do in you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to write. Instead of writing the law on stone tablets for you to put in front of you and say, you can't do this. Instead of that, I'm going to change your heart. Instead of writing them on tablets, I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of your body and I'm going to place in it a heart of flesh. The prophet Ezekiel writes about this and he says this, Moreover." I will give you a heart, and a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And when you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Not because you have to, but because you want to. I'm going to change you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your, your mind. I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to change everything about you. We know this from the New Testament where it speaks to us very, very clearly. That says we're a new creation in Christ, that he changes everything about us. He changes our desires. He changes our hearts. Scripture is very clear that he's going to do something in us. Peter writes about this as well in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he gives us this promise. He says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. It's the eternal covenant. It's the eternal covenant that Jeremiah was writing about before, that Isaiah was writing about before, that Ezekiel was writing All of the prophets writing about the eternal covenant, the new covenant, the new promise. Peter saying this is what it is. It's imperishable. It can't go away. He said, it's in reserve in heaven for you, and it's protected by the power of God, watch this, through faith, through the new covenant, through the new promise in Christ Jesus, he says, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he gives us the ability to have faith in this new covenant. New covenant will be enacted for us on our behalf. And it's being done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the greater high priest. There were priests who offered sacrifices, but since Jesus is the greater high priest, he offers a sacrifice once and for all, scripture says. And this is the message that Jesus was preaching throughout his ministry, wasn't it? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is saying, listen, there's no other way. You can't do it. You you can't keep the law. You you can't live perfectly. Even your best efforts, the prophets say, even your greatest righteousness, the things that you're most proud of are filthy rags. You can't do it. But Jesus says, I'll take you. Paul says in his letter that this new covenant isn't a covenant of works, but it's of grace. You know, I think most of us... um, a lot of us think of salvation in the almost but not quite category. We acknowledge our sinfulness, we acknowledge our inability, but just barely. Because we're moral people, we're ethical people. We would probably place ourselves in a morality contest with our neighbor. Sure, we're not perfect, but Ethel is a disaster. And so it makes us feel good about ourselves. I mean, because we've been taught to view the new covenant in this way, we we have to acknowledge the not quite, but we think almost. It was if uh, imagine this, imagine uh, you were uh, headed back to school, maybe some students in the room, you're you're going to school. Uh, into college, and you're taking an advanced-level uh, math class of some kind—calculus, you know, uh, whatever—and some of you imagine, you know, it's been years, decades, maybe even since you've been in school, into the classroom, and you're going back for another degree, a different degree, and you walk into your your high-level math course that they've placed you in, and uh, the the whiteboard behind the teacher is a whiteboard that goes from from the floor to the ceiling from from the the end wall to the other end wall it's just gigantic and think with me for a second just imagine this if you go in and you see in the upper left-hand corner of that whiteboard there's a small equals mark and then the rest of the board is completely filled with characters numbers letters hyphens every character that's allowed in a mathematical system is on there but the letters are so incredibly small that you have to get up right next to the whiteboard to even make out what those letters are. And it's completely filled from the floor to the ceiling, from one wall to the next. And you're thinking, what have I got myself into? The teacher, the professor comes up and at the beginning of class. She says to you, class, this is going to be an incredible class. We're going to do some incredible things. We're going to solve incredible problems, one of which I'm going to give to, to you today. But don't fear, I've given you the answer right behind me. And immediately, if you were me, you'd be thinking, if this is the solution, what is the problem? When we see that the Son of God came down from heaven's throne to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God, and we see that that's the only solution, we've underestimated our problem. We've underestimated our ability, overestimated our ability to, to almost reach the mark. Listen, if we were just shy of missing the mark, then there would be somebody that would come along that was just a little bit better than us that could. It's not that we not quite but almost miss the mark, it's that we completely miss the mark. We're as far as as making the mark as as jumping over the moon. We're as far from making the mark of righteousness as swimming across the ocean in a hurricane. We're as far from making the mark as outshining the sun. We're not even close. Because we look at Scripture and we look at all of history and we see the Son of God literally gave His life for us. If that's the solution, our problem is much more severe than we could ever imagine. And so it's not just almost, it's not just not quite, but almost. It's a devastating blow to who we are that Scripture says there's nothing in us, there's nothing about us that can ever come close to pleasing God with our actions. I love how Paul says it in his letter to Colossians, chapter 1, verse 21, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... He's painting a picture. He's, he says, there, there's no way that you could ever return. Yet and he's, he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I love the words there. It's not that we actually are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We know that. It's that through the death of Christ, he's able to present us holy, Blameless and beyond reproach, because instead of seeing our sin, he sees his righteousness. Christ brings us to the Father and says, Listen, I'm entering them into this agreement, into this new covenant based on my righteousness. It's the new covenant, it's the new promise. Quickly, I want you to see this the thing that I think I love most about this passage that, that the Old Covenant points us to the, to the New Covenant. The, the, the New Covenant is greater because of greater promises, but I think this is my favorite thing that the text points us to today. The New Covenant is greater because it's finished, the New Covenant is greater because it's been completed. Look at me, uh, look at the passage with me, verse 1, chapter 8, where we've started our our process uh, today. He says this, the author says this, Now the main point, and what's been said is this, that we have such a great high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. It's an interesting passage. There's two phrases that I love in there, that that one, he's taken his seat. Two words that change everything. The New American Commentary writes about this and he says the posture at the right hand of the throne denotes this both royal and priestly aspect. Similar statements have already been made in Hebrews 1 and will be made in Hebrews chapter 13. That Christ as this priest and king is seated further separates the person and work of Christ from the Levitical priesthood that no high priest has ever performed duties while seated. There's, There's no chair in the Holy of Holies. There's nowhere that's even available for a high priest to sit down in. There's no reason that a high priest would ever sit down because he can't. In Hebrews 10, you'll see later on, it stresses that every priest stands daily making the required sacrifices. That cannot take away the sins of the world, right? Jesus, however, having offered up this one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, he sits down in his seat. Right? The seat doesn't belong to anyone else but him because he left it to come for us. He did the work, and now it's finished. He's taking his seat because the work has been accomplished. The work has been done. It's finished. Um, a few years ago, uh, we, our family uh, entered the process of adoption. And we, uh, we felt like the Lord was, was calling us to it and, and started kind of working towards it um and really didn't know what we were getting into um i say that in a good way Uh, maybe if we had known everything about it i don't i kind of don't want to say this because if you feel called to adopt you should but for us if we had known everything it might have scared us you know and so uh it's kind of like being a parent you know like if if you knew exactly what goes into being a parent you know and so we entered into this process and um you know we we just trusted the Lord to take us you know one step after another and and for for many months it was a test of faith and it was a test of just believing and and many people here uh helped bring our little girl home and, and so we adopted her from from Ethiopia we had to go over there twice uh one was for Um, the legality processes. We had to go to court, and she legally became our daughter, and uh, then we had to go back after we worked with the embassy to bring her home. And so one of my favorite moments of the whole process uh, that redeemed a lot of the rest of the process for me was the, uh, the, the first visit that we made to see her, to meet her, and also to legally adopt her. So we spent two days in the orphanage. Uh, we kind of hung out with her. She wasn't a fan of me, but we, we kind of worked through that. Apparently, there's not a lot of big, white, hairy men in Ethiopia. So that was a little different, but we worked through it, right? And so um, so we get into court, and the judge brings me and my wife into uh, her, her chambers, and she asks a little question. She says, have you, have you met... Uh, Avon. There's a law in Ethiopia that, that says you have to actually meet the child before you adopt the child. It's probably a good idea, right? And So we had spent two, two days with her, and we said yes. We, we flew in a couple of days ago. We, we were able to meet her. Uh, we spent you know, two days at the orphanage. She says, perfect. Uh, and so she uses that question to kind of drill us you know, uh, in another direction, and she says, so you know that she's not perfect? Yeah? She kind of hates me at the moment. We know she's not perfect. And then she asks another question, another probing question. So she says, uh, so you know that bringing this little girl into your home is going to change your life forever. So yeah, we got two already. Kind of dating life is done at this point. We might as well just add to it, right? And then she she begins to probe even farther and she says, "You, you understand that 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 this process is, is, is other than just having a child. There's going to be inconveniences along the way. Stories you're going to have to tell. D- different situations that you're going to have to overcome. It's going to be different. Do you understand that this is going to be difficult? I said, I mean, do you want us to adopt this girl or what? I mean, kind of scaring me now. Yeah. Yes, we know it's going to be difficult. And then she says these words. She says, you've seen her. You know she's not perfect. You know that it's going to be difficult. So are you willing, my question to you is, are you willing to take her just the way that she is? No questions asked. So yeah, that's what we came here for. That's 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 what we've been called to do. That's what we've been asked to do. So yes, that's what we'll do. And so the judge uh, In a very dramatic moment, I don't think she was trying to be dramatic, but my favorite moment in that moment, she puts her pen to the paper, and it's almost as if she starts to to take the stroke of her pen that's going to legally make this little girl our little girl. And she looks up one last time, and she says this to me. I can't make this up. She looks me straight in the eye, and she says, Now you realize, if I sign this paper, it can never, ever, for any reason, be undone. I said, you know what? That sounds really familiar. I've heard that story before. I've heard the story of an adoption, one that's brought me into a family, one that's been finished forever and ever, it can never be undone. And that's the promise of this new covenant, that it's not based on what we do. It's not based on our performance. It's based on what he has done, what he has accomplished. He takes his seat because he's finished. He's finished the work on our behalf, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God, and that we are. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father because he's Finished, But for some of us in this room, I think we've chosen to live in fear, maybe. Maybe for some of us in this room, the idea of approaching God is so intimidating because we know us. We know the hurdles in our life, the struggles in our life. We know all of those things about us that no one else knows about us. And we think, man, if they did, they might not even let me in the building And for some of us, we struggle just like the the Jews or the Hebrews at this point to say, maybe if I just perform better, I'll feel better about myself. And maybe if I just do enough good things, then, then I'll feel forgiven. I'll feel like it's been finished. I'll feel like all of these things have taken place. I'll feel like this new covenant is actually a greater covenant. And for some of us, for many of us in this room, if you're not here right now, you've been here. You know what I'm talking about, where you try to to do these things to appease your own conscience, our own conscience, and and somehow that that matriculates, it moves into the the feeling that we can somehow uh, cause God to love us any less or to love us any more. But scripture is very clear. He says, listen, while you were at your worst, God gave his best while you were still sinners, while you were at the depths of your depravity, he gives his life for you. The, the, the Hebrew children, Israel, when they were at the depths, the bottom of the barrel of turning their back away from him, he says, listen, I'm not finished with you. I'm not done. I, I'm, I'm gonna do something greater in your life. I'm gonna write something greater on your heart, not just on stone tablets, not just in a way to boast in front of you that you can't keep it. Instead, I'm gonna change who you are. And so I wonder today, if, if some of us just need just need to just look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. To turn from, from our own motivation, to turn from our own appeasement and to it really just reflect and respond by looking to Jesus, the greater high priest that gives us this greater promise through faith. By the blood of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us this incredible, incredible promise through your only son, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many, for all who would believe. Lord, I pray that you would forgive those of us in the room that so easily turn from you and make this relationship a a ritualistic religion where we might come in for a few hours on Sunday morning. We might even serve, occasionally give. We feel better about ourselves, but Lord, you haven't called us into that. This new covenant, it's not based on what we do, but it's based on who you are, and we're so grateful for that. We're grateful that you offer us forgiveness when we don't deserve it. We're grateful that you've offered us a relationship when we have nothing to bring to the table. And instead of slaves, you call us sons. God, I'm so glad that we don't have to live in, in angst, wondering about this relationship that you've promised us, but instead, you've said, even from the cross, it Is finished. It's done. The new covenant, the new promise, the greater covenant and the greater promise has been given to us through your son and I pray that we would respond well. Lord, for some who might not know you, I pray that they would find you today. I pray that they would abandon the tendency to try to earn our way back. Lord, I pray for those who've been avoiding you because of the sin that's in our life. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to repent and to look to you. Jesus, I pray that you would find us where we are today as you have in all of our life. It's in your name.